You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. For me, this episode talking about Takins is dedicated to Kubla, one of the loves of my life, uh, Chabi. What can they teach us? The researchers hypothesize that these mineral salts might help detoxify or neutralize some of the effects of plants that they eat that are toxic. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. This is the Angie Show. This is the Angie <laughs> Show. I, I've uh, You've bugged me since we began this podcast almost two years ago that you wanted to do this species. So go. Yes, <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> yes. We have a, a saying in Michigan when we're playing this card game called Euchre, which is pretty much just a Michigan game from what I can tell. But anyways, it's a partner game like spades or hearts. And when you have an amazing hand and you don't need your partner, at the beginning of the round, you say, I'm going alone. And so your partner <laughs> has to sit out and you have to win the whole hand beat you know beat oh. your opponents the team of opponents oh. by yourself and it's very rare i've only had a few of them in my lifetime and boy are they fun so yes chris today i can go <laughs> alone and talk about talking until my face turns blue until oh. in the wee hours of the night uh however for our audience i will try to keep it not short but moderately short and definitely sweet oh. because the talking are so near and dear to my heart and quite frankly, I've been wanting to cover this species since we started, mm -hmm. but it's also been a double-edged sword this week for me, Chris, mm -hmm. because I really miss working with Takin and going through my old photos, which of course we'll post some fun ones on Instagram mm -hmm. and reviewing one of the articles I wrote with a colleague at the Lincoln Park Zoo about their behavior and some of their hormone statuses. I was just sad. I was missing mm -hmm. them so much. So much. I know. And Chris, a couple days ago, I even came home and I'd been driving in the car and the boys had fallen asleep. So that was kind of my alone thinking time. And when I walked in the door, John, my husband, says to me, are you okay? And I was. I was totally fine. But I had gotten all teary-eyed just thinking about my talking. So uh -huh. 
this episode, like I said, is very near and dear to my heart. And mm-hmm. for those of you that are not familiar with Taken, pull over the car, pause us, pull up an image of a Taken. It's T-A-K-I-N. We're going to describe it for you. It's a large goat antelope-like species, but mm-hmm. they're just incredible. And it's like the biggest large herbivore that you've never heard of. And hopefully this will be very informative and it'll excite you about them the same way as a zoology major. I had never heard about them until I started working at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And then I got to work with them and fell in love. And so for me, this episode talking about Takins is dedicated to Kubla, one of the loves of my life, uh, Chabi, Jensi, May Lee, little baby I got to hold. And of course, Bozen, or I also call him Bozo because he's just brilliant creature. And also to all the keepers I got to work with throughout the years in the barn, uh, working with Taken, they're big, strong animals, and they are very active, fun to train, super smart. So all the keepers that uh, came before me and, and of course are still there working with them, a huge shout out to any Taken keepers because they're a really cool animal to work with, but they take a special uh, special keeper um, because they are very strong and they're not uh, afraid to show you a little bit of muscle if they need to. So yeah. Uh, Angie, honestly, I didn't know what these were until I think you showed up 10 years ago and said, Oh, I did all this stuff and you had a paper published. And I was really, you know, I, I was really blown away that as you know, a zookeeper, you had a research article out there on these animals. So uh, now I know what they are and, and I've now seen them at the San Diego zoo, the LA zoo. It's, it's one of those that I seek out to look at and I can see why there, there are, they are one of the most unique herbivores, like you said, on the planet. They're amazing. They're amazing. And they're really active all the time. Really fun. And we'll talk about that when we get to their behavior, especially, especially a lot of the juveniles. And Chris, before we get going, I've got to get a, a huge shout out to a group called the Peppermint Narwhal. For those of you that aren't familiar, they're an amazingly artistic environmental conservation group that does just these incredible graphics all about different species. And you can check out their artistic work at www.peppermintnarwhal.com or what I highly recommend is that you follow them on Facebook because a few times a week they have graphics educational graphics about wildlife in general, especially a lot of endangered species like the Taken, which we're talking about today, that really help educate you in just a simple graphic or meme, if you will, about the animals, what they're related to, what their plight is, where they live. And we went ahead this week to partner up with Peppermint Narwhal, say that a few times fast, that's a mouthful, It is to help them with the graphic and make sure that all the subspecies were right. And anyways, we'll uh, add a link to our Facebook page and on Instagram, and hopefully you'll go check them out, like them on Facebook. You will not be disappointed. I've learned so much from this group. They do amazing media and artistic graphic. So a huge thanks to Peppermint Narwhal uh, for reaching out to me and letting me work with them because I love to help when I can. Yeah, no, I, I've actually followed them for for a few years. For, I think like two to three years. I've been watching. Yeah, them. you're you're in the know early. You're you're always yeah. the first. Uh, no, a, but they were cool. Early yeah. adapter. Yeah, they oh, were it's so amazing. Cool. 
Yeah, amazing species. Uh, this week they had goblin shark, which I, I showed my kids, um, you know, because they, they want us to do that episode. That's a hint. Maybe, maybe not. And then uh, <laughs> we also, they had, it was Clouded Leopard Day the other day. So they had a beautiful graphic on that. So I'm yes. excited to see their talking when it comes out uh, with our episode. So we were working hand yeah. in hand with them, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Making so, friends all over the place. I know. I know we are. Oh, it's amazing. So talk about making friends. I got to give out some shout outs to uh, the proper guesses on Fennec Fox last week. So on Instagram, Sid Kid Hippie, Carmary, and oh, I know Autumn, ZKPR Autumn. So now they, they all guessed that on Instagram and then G's on Facebook. It was too easy. I'm doing too, too easy of these little things. So Jonathan up in BC. Hey, Jonathan. Uh, Susie, Jill, Melanie, Joy, Bailey, Blake, Amy, and Damien, all guest Fennec Fox. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was a fun one. They are so yeah. beautiful. Oh, yes. I can't wait to cover another fox species, too. They're yeah. super fun. Now, stay tuned, Angie. So I did, you know, doing some of my digging because I, I know you know all the most of the other stuff. So I had to find something obscure. <laughs> So I found something about Jason and the Golden Fleece, which is a, a Greek, you know, me and my, my love for Greek uh, and Greece. I am excited to hear about this mythology. I yeah. am not necessarily a myth buff like yourself. Yeah, so. no, it's, it's interesting how some of our myths and stuff are based in truth. So is there any link? What is this with Jason, the Golden Fleece and this thing with the talking? So we'll stay tuned at the end for that one. That was that was kind of a fun thing I looked up and, and learned about. And, um, you know, but I think, I think really what the struggle of this podcast is going to be is to describe just how unique this animal is. Right. How do you describe one of the loves of your life in <laughs> words? Yeah. You really can't, you, you really just have to have feelings for them. And yeah. as I, as I sit here now t- talking to you, there's a picture of Kubla hanging on my wall because I just love him so much. And mm-hmm. we'll put a couple pictures of him up on Facebook and Instagram. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think what is really prominent about them is they have all the bells and whiffles. They have hooves and they have horns, mm-hmm. right? So, of course, we love mm-hmm. them to begin with. But what's also really striking about them is their nose or their muzzle, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's big and black. In fact, some biologists, when they first came across Taken, they described them as an unusual cross between a moose or a bison or a wildebeest. And they've been known as a goat antelope, a mm-hmm. new goat, or even a bee-stung moose due to its supersized snaz or nose. Right, right. In fact, a deer keeper friend of mine once joked that out of all the animals in the zoo, including giraffes and rhinos and elephants, that the Takin had the biggest nose, even bigger than a dairy cow, as far wow. as rotundness. Of course, the elephant has a trunk or whatever, so right, right, right. it doesn't beat it in length. But just a huge big black schnoz that in my opinion i just wanted to smooch now of course i didn't do that because that would be inappropriate (laughs) 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 or if i did we can't tell anybody right um but yeah and there i grew up loving goats and uh of course who doesn't right now there's goat yoga and so a talking is kind of just like a giant goat anywhere from 
four to six to seven hundred pounds, depending on if it's a female or a male. Uh, and they are just they have this long, shaggy hair and they're stocky front end, large bodied um, ungulate that has crescent shaped horns that kind of curve and both mm-hmm. male and females have horns as well and they know how to use them they're not shy trust me and they're kind of taller in the front end and slope down a little bit in the back end and some of that confirmation might have to do with them climbing in such steep mountains which we'll get to when we talk about the range mm-hmm. that they live in and then their coat color is also gorgeous you mentioned the golden fleece mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they they have a variety of coat colors from yellowish to golden brown to reddish brown and to dark brown and then a lot of them too have a dorsal stripe which is basically a stripe that runs down vertebral column in the back that's black and so they're golden up front a lot and then darker in the back so they're they're party up front business in the back if you will <laughs> <laughs> And just cute ears that kind of mm-hmm. stick out to the sides, uh, ovalish ears uh, stick out to the sides of the horns. And and I'm probably not doing them justice, uh, so you just have to check out Peppermint Narwhal's uh, graphic or, mm-hmm. of course, our show notes to really get an idea of what we're talking about. See I what know, I, did there? I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, talking about talkings. So one of the things, I think you told me this a long time ago, you know, like uh, – and even San Diego Zoos had this on their site that they look like a an animal or a character from a Dr. Seuss book. Like you told me that sure. long ago. You know, they're just well, so yeah, it's unique. just the way their head is shaped, and then they're mm-hmm. it's they have a big kind of long head, but then this nose, yeah. like I said, the nose isn't uh, like bigger than the face, but it's it's very it's it's overly proportioned probably to maybe some other animals right. or right. I don't know I'm not doing it justice, but it, and it, and it kind of has these littlish horns. Its horns are not super massive. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah, it's a really uh, cute. like some of the other animals yeah. we've talked about recently. Uh, but yeah, and, and of course it has the cloven hoofs. Uh, it's an mm-hmm. ungulate, and so it's got two mm-hmm. toes and like a goat. So that's what kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of a goat. Yeah. And then some of the data, I mean, the height, you know, they, they, at the shoulder, they can be three and a half to four and a half feet or one to mm-hmm. 1.4 meters length, five to seven and a half feet or one and a half to 2.2 meters. And like you said, females up to 600 pounds or 280 kilograms and the males up to 770 pounds or 350 kilograms. So they're not small. These are not small animals. Oh, no, 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 no. Definitely not small animals. And also, um, from a zoo perspective, when they're under human care, they are big, they are climbers, and they are strong. Like when goats headbutt each other or climb up on stuff, it's pretty cute, right? If Mm -hmm. you're doing yoga with them or if you're in a goat petting pen. Uh, But a talking, no, no, it's not. I mean, it's it's brilliant to watch because they're – they're very agile for their size and they can definitely climb pretty well, but they're also mm. very strong and very powerful. So a lot of zoos can't house them unless they have special reinforced habitats or enclosures because, I mean, they are very strong. Very well. And it you, you make a good point because they range in Asia. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at China, Tibet, Bhutan and India are the four major countries. And they're usually at altitude, so between 1,000 to 4,500 meters, which translates to 3,300 or up to almost 15,000 feet. So 
they, you know, uh, like to live up in altitude, you know, and, and really the Himalayas is one of the areas they're kind of known for. So to be able to add to this podcast, because I know Angie wants to talk about all the fun stuff, but I thought it'd be kind of cool because I started this last week with the Fennec Fox and it made me kind of think about the biome. So I wanted to kind of talk about the Himalaya mountains real quick, because those of us that don't live near the Himalayas or have not been near that part of the, the world, though I do know we have listeners in India now and that part of Asia, which Hello, you know, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank Request you. Request some uh, more species. <laughs> yeah, especially from your area of the world. You know, but we do have listeners in that part of the world, which is amazing. But for those of us that that don't live there, there's a varied, <laughs> you know, different types of habitat in that part of the world. Now, the, what we know about the Himalayas, tallest mountain range in the world, Mount Everest, tallest mountain in the world, stands at twenty nine thousand twenty nine feet or eight thousand eight hundred forty eight meters. Huge. This is actually the youngest mountain range on the planet. Oh, I and, didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And it's a result from the Australia, they call it the Indo-Australia plate, pushing I, I up into the Eurasian plate. Yeah. yeah, I guess if I thought about it, I would have thought the Andes, like the New World. Yeah, but yeah New no? World, no, no, no. This is a, the a geological time frame. So. Okay, cool. That's but, just why I love this podcast. Yeah. It's just filled with fun facts. <laughs> so Australia, we had to get, a, get an Australia reference in there. Australia-India plate is actually making the Himalayas as it runs into the Eurasian plate. But yeah, the Himalayas, we've covered, you know, snow leopards to an extent. We we probably need their own, their own uh, individual episode, but you know, you do have tigers and and Asian elephants because the climates are ranging in the Himalayas from tropical at the base of the mountains to snow and ice at the top of Mount Everest that doesn't harbor any animals. So you know, you have these grasslands, shrublands in between nine to 16,000 feet. These are all areas where you, you do have snow leopards, the Himalayan tar, musk deer, pikas. I read pikas mm-hmm. like to be in this range. Then you have a little bit lower, if you go under eight to 13,000 feet, a coniferous forest. So red pandas, which would be a yes. cool one we should do one day. Oh, and yes. talk. Yeah, and talkins, mm-hmm. obviously. Then you have a broadleaf mixed forest of 6,000 to 9,000 feet. So again, we're talking lives. And then you have the tropical, subtropical broadleaf forests. Talkins don't live there, but tigers and Asian elephants do. So very, very unique, unique biome, the Himalayan mountains. It's not just the ice that you think of or the snow that you get down to the tropics. You know, right. all the way in between. So yeah, or talking, if you're talking, you yeah. migrate depending on the season. You go right. up and down right. as you need to, where the grasses are. Yeah, and the browse. So mm-hmm. yeah, so interesting, interesting. And, and as we you know travel around the world, I'll, I'll I'll keep doing this and kind of updating on different biomes because I thought it was kind of a cool, unique thing that I should probably start to add. Absolutely. Well, and it's fun to think about the ecology of, like you said, who lives where and who lives in what Mm -hmm. range. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And of course, the panda is in somewhat in the talking range as well, too, I Mm -hmm. believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of the bamboo forests and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the range, like you mentioned, they're found in Bhutan, China, northwest India, and northern Myanmar or Burma. And in that range, there's actually four subspecies of Takin, mm-hmm. which are all mm-hmm. vulnerable by the IUCN. 
And we'll get some of those numbers out a little bit later in the podcast. And of the four, so when you're talking about the ranges too, obviously the four subspecies. So the, the Bhutan talking, which you were talking about. So yes. that's obviously Bhutan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to highlight the Bhutan talking uh, at the end of the podcast. So I have a new place where if I run away, I guess <laughs> it's not. I guess it won't be a secret if it's on air. <laughs> But I have a new place besides the Rhino Orphanage that uh, Mm -hmm. people can find me. So we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. Okay. That's the Bhutan talking number one. Right. Then next to it in, I guess, Nepal and China, Tibet is the Mishmi talking. And yes, the Mishmi talking, those are housed under human care, I think, at San Diego Zoo. I think they're one of the only mm-hmm. zoos in North America that has them. Uh, there's only the one Mishmi, or two okay. zoos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the Bhutan, I should have mentioned, uh, both the Bhutan and the Mishmi are very, have like more of the, the dark brown, reddish, and black coat to them. Still beautiful markings along their face and black high points mm-hmm. and stuff. But they're what I consider to be a little bit darker in color and probably not where uh, the myth of the golden fleece came from. So that's not two. Yet. Mishmi's number two. What are you doing? You're getting ahead of yourself there. <laughs> the golden fleece. Yeah, we're getting there though. We're getting there. You're right. So the two. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's keep going east and north okay. a little bit into China. Mm-hmm. So then you have the Sichuan talking, right? That's the one you worked with. Sichuan. Sichuan. Yes, this is the one that I worked with, uh, the Sichuan talking. They have more of the yellow, blonde hair or fur over their their face, and then it runs down their neck and the crest of their neck, into their chest, and then into the front legs. And so I would say, I guess, the front half of their body is this beautiful, I mean, if if talk about, um, what do they call it, a store-bought blonde, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where the girls yeah, with peach yeah, blonde yeah, yeah. dye their hair blonde. Well, this is That's all natural, folks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is all natural. <laughs> Just beautiful um, blonde and, and ish, yellowish in the front half. And then the, the back half has some high points, but it's a little bit more darker brown um, and black in color. Okay. Now we can talk about the beauty of the four, I think. And that's the golden talking, and that's just in a, a tucked, tuck, I guess, tucked away in a corner in China. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. The, the golden talking, I've never seen one in person, but from the photos, they're just stunning. They're all blonde for the most part, uh, just gorgeous coat, long, um, shaggy fur, if you will. And of course, all of the talking have kind of that goat, long haired chin that hang, some of it that hangs down from their chin. But yeah, the golden talking is beautiful. And once again, you'll have to check out our show notes, or I think the, um, the peppermint narwhal graphic does a nice job of showing you some of the different coat colors and, um, and of course, unique aspects to each of the four subspecies. Right. And the ranges are interesting because looking at this range map, and I'll post it on the show notes, I, I always do. The Bhutan is like really probably the smallest of the range. The Mishmi has the, the broadest range. The Sichuan's or the Sichuan, the, your favorite. Sichuan, Sichuan. Those things have a pretty moderate range. I mean, I think range. I'm saying the, it right. I don't know. But you probably are. You worked with them. I didn't. That's, so how we said, probably. That, that's how we said it in the Midwest. That doesn't necessarily mean it's right. <laughs> And then the golden one had their range is pretty small. Yeah, I guess the Bhutan has the smallest, but anyways, and we'll get to their numbers towards the end of the podcast too. It's yeah. always interesting to look at that. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, Angie, 
set your personal feelings aside for Stop a second. Stop it. That's the can. fun part of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but why care? Besides the fact that you love them, this extremely unique mammal, why care about the talking? I think that's actually enough. Uh, okay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> even if is. you Google, no, I'll tell you a little bit more, but even if you Google it, um, some really cool blog posts come up by different science writers or National Geographic people, explorers, that basically say this is like the largest mammal you've never heard about that you need to mm-hmm. know about. Uh, you should care about it. It's just so unique and gorgeous to look at and, and amazing climber, very well adapted to diff- different habitats, as you kind of mentioned, with, within the Himalayas of the lower altitudes and, of course, of the higher altitudes. So that's probably number one. And then number two is I've worked with them. Their behavior and their personalities are more on the goat side mm-hmm. than probably the antelope side. Mm-hmm. And when we get to evolution, you'll talk about they're in the bovid family. So you'll help us set, segment out which, what are they more related to an mm-hmm. antelope or a goat or a sheep or what are they? But their personality is big. They're big, stocky, powerful animals and they have big personalities. And that for me is that's one of the main reasons I fell in love with them and really smart, fun to train. They're just amazing creatures. So we have to help conserve them for that alone. So someday I can retire and just work with Taken all day long. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But from an environmental or ecosystem perspective, they're a large herbivore. And we'll talk about it in nutrition, but they eat plant material, so anywhere from grasses, and they and they browse a lot too on several different plants. So they fill that niche as far as mowing down certain grasses, some seed dispersal, and eating a lot of food each day. Right, as um, as a member in the cow or bovid family, they eat a lot each day. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. if you take away a major herbivore like that, I can only hypothesize that it would have a big repercussion on a lot of the plant and or grass species that that are in their habitat in the Himalayas. And with that being said, even though they are big, powerful animals, so adults are safe for most predators, they do play a role in sometimes being um, a snack for like you mentioned, a snow leopard, mm-hmm. um, depending on where they're found, other large carnivores. So they have that role as well too, right? Yeah. And then from an economic importance, when it's not about the money, it's about the money, right? Like my dad used to always say, there's not a whole lot of data, except for that people are starting to take notice and want to learn more about this creature. Uh, they have, they are being studied more now to try to learn about their natural behaviors and how they migrate and where they breed and what the numbers are. Uh, there's still some in, inefficient data as, as far mm-hmm. as that goes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's even starting to be a little ecotourism as far as wanting to go see these guys in the wild. I know I'm, I would be on that train if I had free time and money. Sign me up for that, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, I mean, it would be really cool if the Takin was added to, you know, how Africa has like the big five or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Bhutan, southern China, northern India area, where Takins can be found, it'd be cool if they were part of like the, oh, I want to see a Takin, a red panda, mm-hmm. um, a pika, uh, like yeah. you had mentioned, or pa- a panda. Like if there could be a, 
maybe a safari, for lack of better words, that went around to perhaps reserves or preserves mm-hmm. to see those guys. Uh, so I think I think anybody that studies them a little bit or learns a little bit about them will fall in love. And then, of course, that could drive some economics and money generated for the community around there. Right, right, which is always a, a positive of ecotourism. You know, one of the reasons we're really pushing it or we want to push it is it helps put money in the pockets of locals, you know, employs a lot right. of people. Responsible. Th- don't try to take a, don't try to take a yeah. selfie with a talking. No, no. Uh, I, trust me. I, even, I mean, <laughs> I just read someone else yes. got gored by a bison in exactly. No, these you guys know. are related to bison. They, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll talk about in behavior, but yeah, they, if they have any animal that has horns is not afraid to use them. No, so, no, that's why they have them. That's why they have And them. at the zoo, it should be noted too, any of the pictures you see of me and Taken or whatever, it was always through protective contact. Always, mm-hmm. always, always, always. I mean, they were one of the most dangerous animals in the barn mm-hmm. because not necessarily on purpose, but just their overall size. And once again, if they get spooked, they're not going to run away from you. They're going to come towards you, right? Yeah, and you don't want to be in there. You don't, definitely don't want to oh, no. be in there. Mm-mm. Now, you, you keep mentioning some of their natural history. So let me uh, set the record straight because it's really interesting. You know, it was, it was kind of interesting to, to go through this and, and see where they fall in the Bovidae family. Now, their scientific name is, oh, I'm probably going to butcher it, Bodorcus Bur- <laughs> yeah. Taxicolor. Bodorcus Taxicolor. Mm-hmm. There you go. I knew you'd, you'd correct me. Yeah. And, and then, so my, my, my love, my Kubla is Bodorcus Taxi color, Tibetana. There you go. And then the Bhutan is Waitai. So and uh, I guess the Budarchus, Taxi Color, Waitai. Mishmi is uh, Budorcus Taxi Color, Taxi Color. And then the Golden is Budorcus Taxi Color, Bed 40. So those are the yeah. scientific names mm-hmm. of, of all the, the four subspecies. There will now, be it, a quiz after the show, Chris. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I had to get that right for you. Now, thank you. This was interesting. Natural history for I don't know 100 years since they've known the species, they've always linked them to mus- muskox because they look yes. very similar, right? They do. Not a shaggy, but no. Definitely look similar. similar. Look similar. Mm-hmm. They always thought, okay, these th- these two, two things are related. Which we Not need to true. cover those guys too. Oh, we man. will. We will. We okay. will. Definitely we will. But we know now with DNA evidence that that is not true. They actually are not that closely related. But because of convergent evolution, they look very similar. Buzzword. Yep. Angie covered that like, I don't know, 60 pods ago, where species have evolved similar form or function of the body, but they're actually not that closely related. So they, they look very similar, but they're not. Now, obviously, the Bovidae, you have your cattle, your antelope, bison, sheep, and goats. Those are your big ones. Where do Taken fall in? Well, I'll tell you what. They're, they're not related to antelope at all. I mean, or moose. The tree, or moose. <laughs> I mean, up the tree they are, obviously. Or news. Not related to wildebeest. No, no. But they are related. They're in the subfamily Caprinae, which mm-hmm. is sheep and goats. Yes. So that is where they, they fall. So ibex, mountain goats, etc. those are the, the re- more related species. Now, what's interesting, this was fun. Within Caprinae, there's actually tribes. 
And this tribe is, I love this name, it's so funny, Ovi Bovini. So Ovi Bovini includes the Talkin and Muskox. But now we know the Muskox and Talkin aren't really that closely related, <laughs> but they still fall into the same tribe. Okay. Now, we've covered bovid evolution many times. Don't need to go over it. It's been over 15 million years. Now, Bedorcus genus, the first fossils we can find is somewhere about four to two million years ago in China. Mm-hmm. So their ancient relatives were from China. And then DNA sequencing is showing that they're actually more related, closely related to sheep than they are to goats. I've known some cool sheep. That makes sense. I've definitely known some fun sheep. But they say sheep and talking don't necessarily share a very common ancestor. They're just more closely related. Than goats, sure. So the talking are just completely on their own. You know, completely they are, rare. See, now you yeah. get it. They yeah. are. They're just so different. And it is just really incredible because I worked with a lot of different keepers during my tenure. And mm-hmm. so a lot of different people that I know got to work with Taken. And a lot of them were, let's just say, more marine mammal keepers mm-hmm. or primate keepers or carnivore keepers like my husband. Mm-hmm. And, of course, obviously some hoofstock and farm keepers as well. And typically, obviously, us hoofstock and farm keepers, no doubt, of course, we fell in love instantly. Yeah. But the keepers that were more primate or grade ape keepers, as well as a carnivore keeper, that everybody loved. Everybody loved Kubla. Everybody loved yeah. talking. Yeah. In fact, the CEO of the zoo, his one of his favorites were the talking, just because they're so charismatic and. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so it it just it, it they are hard to describe, and hopefully uh, this podcast for those of you that aren't familiar with them will excite you to learn more about them, uh, if and, not from our podcast, from other other sources because they're cool. Yeah, yeah, they're just so unique. They're so unique. Now, here's something interesting too about the talking is their genetic variability is very low, just like the cheetah we covered. Uh, well, we did. We released it. It was a Patreon only, but we did cover the cheetah. And we talked about this at the end of the last ice age, they almost got wiped out. So did cheetah, you know, North America, cheetah went extinct. Like cheetahs almost went extinct. That is where they lost a lot of their genetic diversity. Their population was so low. So yes, but they survived and they're still surviving. And that would be another reason why I care about them is like you said, they survived that ice age, man, they Mm -hmm. fought hard. Let's keep Mm -hmm. fighting for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Angie, one of the things I love doing is finding the largest of something or the smallest of something. I couldn't find anything cool. So (laughs) (laughs) I just couldn't. I looked, I looked, I looked. You don't need to. They're cool enough on their own. I know, I know. So I came up with the origin of the Capernet family of sheep. Where do you think sheep in the world evolved from? Of all the places on Earth. North America. No, I know you would think because everything involved in everything North, North America. Okay, let me take a second guess because that was just my like in- quick instant guess. Um, guess yeah, I guess I would go with Asia or the Middle East. Yeah, Tibetan Plateau. That's Boom, where they. Think. Yeah, that. there you go. Cool. So there's <laughs> the. It's called the out of Tibet hypothesis that ancestral sheep. Now, did they? If we go back more and more millions of years ago, because a lot of things did come out of North America, sure. But sheep today, like the talking, the the modern species we see, or really the the wild type that we're talking about, mm-hmm. 
they believe evolved out of Tibet or that part of China and then dispersed around the world where they went into Europe and then also North America, you know, where they I came I know, in. we need to do big horns. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So anyways, I thought that was a cool factoid. <laughs> I had to find something to fill that spot. I love it. No, you did yeah. fantastic. You always, yeah. I, I always learn, which is fun. Yeah. Now these things, uh, talking can live 10 years in the wild or up to 12 years in, under human care. I didn't know if you found anything longer. Uh, some, it, of course, it's probably on a, a subspecies basis or mm-hmm. data. I think it depends on the subspecies and probably whether they're in the wild or under human care. But I had in the wild, it might be up to 15 to 18 years. Okay. okay. Uh, of course, it depends on their health and all that. And then under human care, I would say, yeah, 12 to 15, maybe, maybe up to 20, uh, close to your t- typical bovine. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like uh, 10 sounded a little low for me, but you know, cause it's a large ungulate and they, they tend to live a little bit longer than say a, a yes. carnivore, carnivore mm-hmm, 12 Not years. as long as horses. No, <laughs> not, what, she's Rosie's still going. Or rhinos, uh, rhinos and elephants. So yeah, way, mm. way, way long, way longer. Yeah. yeah. If we go back to Brzezwalski horse, that was one of our early episodes. And you were talking about how long is this horse going to live for? <laughs> no, Rosie, Rosie, she's still going strong. 34. Yeah, she's and doing she good. Is, she gets healthier every day. She loves her Florida <laughs> retirement. So bless her heart. Yes, yes. Now, obviously, we, we said these, these animals are adapted to alpine life. Uh, one of the things I found interesting, and we since we just covered Saiga a few pods ago, is that large nose you were talking about, its purpose. Its mm-hmm. purpose is that they're in this this high altitude where it's cold, cold. and like the saiga, that large nose when they inhale warms up the air, so when it hits the lungs, it doesn't hurt, you know, or cools down body core temperature either. Mm, yeah, isn't that physiology, mm-hmm. form and function, right? And Chris, preparing for this podcast too, I also read that with these high altitudes, they will make use of some of the hot springs. Uh, no kidding. Similar to really? those, uh, monkeys. snow monkeys. Yeah, which mm-hmm. we'll have to cover too. Those things are amazing. And it's just interesting because we never, of course, in Chicago gets very cold and they love the snow and they're so fun mm. to watch in the snow with their enrichment. And of mm. course, they're just amazingly interactive and fun animals to watch. And in the summertime, we provide them a, um, a swimming pool or wading pool and they love that. But we never did the hot springs with them. So I don't know if they would make use of it or not and um, under human care. But yeah, I thought that was a really fun factoid. And I <laughs> see that could be, the, that could be the ecotourism event, right? Like right. go there, see the talking in the hot springs with the, oh my gosh. with the snow monkeys. And then you mm. are in a hot tub with a fence in between y'all <laughs> and just drinking your coffee. I know. Oh, that'd be awesome. So here's something that, that you probably ran across. Their skin secretes this oily, Bitter tasting. I don't know who would taste it. Substance. <laughs> that a true scientist, a hardcore scientist out <laughs> in the field is like, what is this crap on their skin? And then they are like, oh, man, that does not taste good. <laughs> Somebody speaking from experience, right? I, I, I'm looking oh, at Oh, yeah. John knows. I always fall for every time I'm like, let me smell that bologna. <laughs> and then. And then I always, or cheese and I, or shoes and I go in and I own it. And every time after I do that, I'm like, why did you let me go so (laughs) close to the source? So, uh, yeah. And they do, they definitely, they lack skin glands 
but they do secrete this oily substance and it the researchers think it's per- perhaps to protect their coat from rain maybe during mm-hmm. when they're in the rainy season or storm in the winter time uh but Another hypothesis, too, is it can be used to rub on trees during rutting or their breeding season as perhaps a sign of this is my territory mm-hmm. or I'm here. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we're, they're not really sure. And our talking weren't too greasy in, in That's Chicago. Good. That's good. So I, I don't really so I don't really ever remember it being something where if I uh, was training with them and doing some tactile reinforcement of either grooming them or I don't remember ever coming off and having grease on my hands the the same way Mm -hmm. for instance when I used to have a husky and I would pet him Mm -hmm. I would always have like a little a little film on my coat and then I don't think I ever take I don't think his his oil secretions were bitter so yeah I don't know maybe if it's more of a thing depending on their hormonal levels or male versus female but it obviously is an important part of their physiology, especially uh, in the wild. And yeah, so no, it's a, it's a fun fact, but definitely not greasy. Like the first time I touched a hippo, I was like, mm. holy cremoli. Yeah. Totally not what you expect. It is very, yeah, that, they have a really slimy, greasy, oily yeah. secretions, yeah. which just helps, helps them in the water. It's very mm-hmm. important. All this stuff has, of course, a physiological importance. But the tokens and that I hung out with were fluffy. So a copy, another animal that that secretes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that stuff's yeah. nasty. That gets on your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So but no, I I kind of want to go pet you know, go pet a Jensi or May Lee and uh mm-hmm. Taste it. <laughs> my hand. But that that would be bad for biohazard purposes. So yeah, who's listening, no. I'm not going to do that. So. Yeah, no. Don't let engineer your talkings. <laughs> no, uh, hey, 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 no, I'm no, kidding, that, I'm, kidding, I'm, kidding, that, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Angie loves your talkings. Bring her by. Yes, I, I usually get to go by and visit uh once a year if mm-hmm. um if I'm lucky. So and, and then the I Angie, cry every time I, know, I leave. I look so I hard know. to say goodbye. So I and I think the rest of their physiology, they're just built tough. You know, they're built, these shaggy coats, they're, they're hearing, they are their eyesight. solid like yeah. a rock, like the yeah. rock they climb on. Males, females, they're yeah. tough. They are tough, yeah. tough, tough. Yeah, yeah. So physiology, your basic bovid, you know, type physiology. But some, some ad- adaptations for that Himalayan or that high altitude life. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, just, just really quickly, Angie, you know, and you can maybe speak more to this. I don't know, but you know, as far as what they eat, a variety of plants in that environment. Uh, I think I read somewhere one scientist said uh, over sixty plants, close to seventy plant species that yeah, they they like definitely. to graze on or, mm-hmm. or really browse on, right? Sure, so, sure, yeah, they yeah. do. They, they'll do both. They're like you said, right. they're very they are very adaptable depending on uh, what's around, I suppose. Right, right, right. In time of year, things like that. Did read a little bit. They do go and, and to get their minerals, they'll go and do salt licks or something where they, they can find it. Yeah, Chris, it's really, it's a huge part of their literature um, from any of the uh, the handful of studies that have been done of them in the wild, of either the Mishmi or the Goldens, I believe. That yeah, they actually have a really high intake of minerals or salt um, and they'll travel great distances to reach these salt deposits and when they get there they'll hang out for several days so researchers aren't really sure why it's such a high demand compared to maybe some other uh, bovid species that have been studied uh, 
the researchers hypothesize that these mineral salts might help detoxify or neutralize some of the effects of plants that they eat that are toxics or may have toxins in them. So they're not sure. Uh, But it is, it is, it is a pretty unique, cool behavior. And Chris, I also read this kind of crazy, um, for those listeners that are sensitive, you might want to not, and you love pandas, you mm-hmm. might not want to listen to this, but there was footage from camera traps or trail footage of pandas, which live in some of the talking habitat, mm. mowing down on a talking carcass. Oh, Okay. Which is bizarro, right? Because yeah. pandas are also herbivores, right. but maybe they might have some omnivore traits if they come across something. So- well, we know from covering pandas that pandas do have the carnivore stomach. Right. They should be carnivores according to their digestive right. physiology, which check out but that podcast not. for us to really dork out about nutrition. We won't yeah. do that this time. So just but yeah, yeah I was that's like, bizarre. Oh, that's man, bizarre. Wow. Like, I don't like that visual. Like I, I know, these pandas is just uh, just chillax and eating their bamboo. And no, um, so and I don't know how prevalent it was just documented one time or what, but but, but very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And in regards to some of their nutritional behavior, takins are really agile, and so they often will stand up on their hind legs, and so now they're really tall, like very very big and mm-hmm. tall. Uh, I might be able to post some pictures of them during some of my training sessions where I'm, I'm cueing them for an up behavior, of course, in protective yeah, contact. Yeah. And I mean, their front feet are well uh, over my head. But mm-hmm. this is a natural behavior that we would solicit for hoof trims and things like that because what they'll do is they'll push over saplings and trees huh. and to get some of the green foliage and also talking about how uh, adaptive they are to their environment – they can reach a lot of the taller brows. I mean, they're no giraffe, but they can reach mm-hmm. a lot of the taller brows than some of the other animals. So it just really helps diversify. Yeah, yeah. And and I, 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 the jeernook came to my mind. One of those right long that, neck species. Chris, that's exactly species, what yeah. they do. Although they're they're not quite as agile as a jeernook. Right. That can almost just mid air stand right. on two feet. Almost looks like they could just walk right into your. I know. I know. Your house. I know. Uh, yeah. But they, but they usually will, like I said, stand on something to help them. And it might even be a tree to brace themselves to grab the leaves or to push it over. Uh, and so just really, really cool behaviors. And then they have these, once again, to talk more about their bee stung muzzle mm. or their, their lips. They have really broad, flexible lips that can be mm. selective for certain feedings. And so, yes, definitely – Easily the best mouth or lips ever, hands down. Better than <laughs> I would even go as far to say this is going to be. I don't know if I can even say this. Ah, uh, controversial. Here we go. <sighs> but probably even better than a black rhino. There's the black rhino uh, is a browser. Yeah. It's amazing when you get to hand feed them because they mm-hmm. just have that prehensile lip and it's yeah, just. Uh, yeah. But I don't know. I, for me, I think a talking wins. So that's a different debate. Well, you've been up close day. personal, so you've seen it. Yeah, I've so fed them both. You've, you've, not, you've, I guess not everybody yeah. can say that, right? So, yeah. Uh, but I'm also did, did very, not kiss very biased. You did not kiss them. Yeah, you yeah. did not say you did not kiss them on the nose. So uh, we don't I know. know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but you do want to. You want to like just scratch their head. Uh, I miss so them. What I, so I know this is really, you know, the what you studied with them. 
mm-hmm. some of their behavior. Mm-hmm. So I know this is a, a rare treat for us and me to hear from somebody, one of the rare studies, really think about it, on this species. You've, sure. You and Rachel did one of the few studies uh, on talking, you know, especially under human care. Yes. So what are some of the stuff, I guess, not only that you learned, but what are some of the behaviors that they do that just astound you? Well, at the zoo, we were wondering about some of their breeding behaviors. And so we, and so instead of just saying, oh, we think they're doing this or they're not doing that, we actually use science and did a behavioral ethogram and a behavioral study to try to figure out how they're spending their days. As far as an activity budget, a lot of what you sometimes mention is boring, a lot of eating and sleeping. Well, this is where it all began. This is where sure. it all this began is, for me and you. This is where yes. it all began. Yeah. And years so, ago. Yeah. Yes. Hours and hours of my life and a whole bunch of volunteers mm-hmm. observed our family of Takins to see what they were doing. And first it was a male and a female. And then we brought in another female. And then one female came in pregnant. And then our other female ended up mm-hmm. pregnant. And and then they had two offspring, baby talking, that we got to watch grow up and learn about baby talking behavior, which is just, there's nothing cuter. And I have some photos <laughs> that I'll put up as far as, they're like little goats. They grow really mm-hmm. fast, but they're like little goats and they climb on everything, including their moms. And they're just fun. They headbutt, <laughs> super funny, anything. They'll headbutt anything. And so, yeah, we just observed them uh, under human care in their big exhibit, wanting to see how they utilize the exhibit. Were they in the pool a lot? Were they... Uh, playing in the snow, what what were they doing? And the reason we wanted to do this is because, yeah, when we looked up or called other zoos, hey, what do Takins do? Everybody was like, I don't know. And then my colleague, from an endocrinologist point of view, Rachel, when she called up other zoos and said, hey, what do their hormones look like if they're pregnant? Because she studies feces to learn about mm-hmm. hormone profiles in animals to tell if they're stressed out or to tell if they're pregnant or if they've hit puberty, all these really cool questions she can answer with just their poop. And everybody said, we don't know. So mm-hmm. her team worked on the hormone profiling. I collected a lot of poop along with my, mm-hmm. my uh, colleagues. And then mm-hmm. I worked on the behavioral aspect of the family and their interactions and dynamics. And then we came together and wrote a paper to help other zoos uh, that are wondering what their daily activity budget looks like. So, yeah, we can post it on the show notes, but really, it's probably not too exciting for people. I they, was excited for you. Uh, yeah, it, it is, was it is exciting. exciting. I'm, I'm, let I'm me, trying to say. Let, let, me, let me jump in since I wasn't on the paper. This was before I met you. And, I, and I've been thinking a lot about this today, too. And I was thinking about, you know, the research being produced that you did, okay, for, per se, or other zoos are doing. And how that translates to our knowledge. And if we go back, just the the panda keeper talk with the San Diego Zoo, which was amazing. And they were talking about Zims and sharing information across sure. agencies on yeah, these you animals. Re- you don't want to reinvent the wheel. And especially a lot of these animals are novel or endangered mm-hmm. or vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so learning, asking scientific questions to help learn more about their reproductive biology, to learn more about their behavioral biology Mm -hmm. and overall physiology to enhance their welfare. That is the ultimate goal. Yeah. And, and and it's, you know, it's easy to point at zoos and say, Oh, you know, that animal is never going to be released in the wild. That may be true, but where, where I'm going with this is the data being produced 
does affect animals in whatever wild remains. And the reason I'm saying that is, it, 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 as I was thinking about it today, Dr. Barney Long, bringing buddy, all these Sumatran, I know, we got to get him back on, bringing all these Sumatran rhinos under human care, because they're almost extinct. There's 50 left in the world. They've, they, they're doing a, an emergency plan. Yeah, if that, emergency plan to bring them all under human care, to take care of them and, and protect what's left in the world of this population. That data that we've produced, not me per se, but you, you know, your colleagues or other people in, in zoo, zoos throughout the world is directly affecting Sumatran rhinos. I guarantee it. The diets, how to manage them, the work that you know our friend Allison did in rhino relocation, the, the, the things she did, the data that she used and the information she used in rhino relocation in Africa, saving black rhinos, was produced in zoos. Sure. So, Absolutely. you know, I'm sorry to, to jump in there, but oh, I just... No, you know, I, I appreciate it. It's great. You explain it so well. I, I'm just, I'm kind yeah. of in in it or I was in it so yeah. heavily that I've you just, can't see it yeah it's hard it. it's hard to see the forest yeah. through the trees and and so in the wild there's just not a lot known about their activity budgets it literally mm -hmm. says they may be active day and night but this can change with the season and so mm -hmm. it's just it's there's not a lot of concrete data of how these animals typically are spending all their time and once again we know as a bovid that they're going to ruminate and migrate and sleep and be inactive and all this and that, but how and where they do it. And I think with the talking, it was incredibly interesting to ask some questions about how social they are. Because in the wild, they're very social, very gregarious creature. However, their core unit uh, is females with their young and, of course, generations of offspring from these females and there might be a male in there but older males are usually solitary unless it's breeding or rutting season mm -hmm. and or if they're younger males of course so when we had them under human care we wanted to ask the question of well do we need to keep our males and females separated unless it's breeding season and so asking those kinds of questions were really interesting because we found out from our study, that they were fine living side by side. And it could have been, of course, the male, uh, perhaps, and this group of females. And sometimes, of course, that's where animal care staff always has to make judgments based on the individual animals. But for us, we found that they did fine. And they actually expressed social affiliative, which that's a fancy word for friendly behaviors, mm -hmm. anywhere from 5 to 10% of the time. And that would even sometimes be the male with the offspring or the younger tokens, the juvenile tokens. And so it was really important data when you're trying to figure out how to house these when you don't have as much space or when you only have right. a certain amount of yards and exhibits that they can be in. And then, of course, we also learned from our study that it makes sense. They spend about, about 30% of the time feeding and drinking, and they are very active during the day. They're not necessarily nocturnal animals. Uh, and they also rest a lot, which is probably them ruminating. We actually found that they spent a, a decent percent of their time off exhibit. They had a, an area behind the scenes where they could, if they didn't want to be out in their yard, if they wanted to go hang out behind the scenes, 
they did that a lot. And so we learned that it was very important for their welfare to offer them that option. And so, because it's all about the talking and what, what makes a happy talking. And of course, Rachel was monitoring hormones to figure out those sorts of questions. And so really important too, is when we learn more about them under human care, and then we learn more about them in the wild, we can cross reference each other and, and learn Mm -hmm. from each other because I would want to know more of what they're eating in the wild. So we could mimic, have a more natural diet, keep more healthy under human care. And and there are groups that have been doing some radio, radio collaring of uh, Sichuan Takins, I believe. And there has been some radio collaring of some of the golden Takins that's helping us provide more data about understanding some of their rutting behavior and overall breeding behavior, which I'll get to. But it definitely is a collaborative effort to try to learn about their basic biology in order to enhance their welfare when they're living under human care, but also to help them live in the wild, right? To, to mm-hmm. learn more about what areas we need to protect, where do they migrate, things like that. And in regards to mi- their migration, it has been documented that they will go to the highest altitudes in the summer, which that makes sense, right? Get out of the heat. And during the spring, they'll be at the lowest altitude, uh, probably getting the green grasses. And then in the winter, they spend a little bit time in the intermediate area. But they definitely move between low valleys and high forests. And they'll follow these paths uh, that are usually well-worn by other animals and mm-hmm. also that may lead them to these different mineral licks. Well, Angie, I just, again, you know, and I know, like you said earlier, you, you were in the middle of it, so you don't see it. And I, you know, outside of the research I've done, and again, this global perspective we have on the envi- the crisis we're in, the, the the biodiversity crisis we find ourselves in, and all these agencies are coming together and, and fighting for the talking, fighting for, you know, different species throughout Africa, Asia, South America, North America, you know, Australia and the oceans. So the data being produced with animals under human care, I cannot understate this to people that aren't in the industry or don't aren't scientists or just every day trying to understand because they care, you know, our listeners care. You know, especially an hour into an episode, they're still listening. The people still listening right now are conservation heroes. They care. Sure. They care. And so it's just we need to educate the masses that zoos are doing so much critical work. And again, that's the message, you know, you and I are trying to, to get out there as outsiders now. You know, you, you, you haven't worked in zoos for years and I've never worked for a zoo. So as a scientist, as an educator, as a podcaster now, you know, we really cannot applaud the work being done behind the scenes that people do, people don't know that you did that study. Just the people in the zoo industry that that care about talking. Right. The zookeepers you know? are behind the scenes collecting their putting a, a rubber glove on mm-hmm. and collecting their poop uh, every day, right. sometimes twice a day yeah. to try to better understand what's going on with them physiologically, asking questions about mm-hmm. their health, about the reproductive status, about their happiness, and really trying to, to learn from them. And yeah, and it's a collaborative effort. It's from the top up to the bottom. And, right. and it was a really, and that's what basically made me want to go back to school, seeing what Rachel did, seeing what yeah. 
what's out there, uh, that there's so many more questions to be asked. And so, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a phenomenal experiment experience that shaped me to where I, where I am today. And, but gosh, darn, I miss those. (laughs) So let me, enough about my paper. Let me, let me tell about, tell tell you why I miss them even more is that they're just awesome. They're awesome. And so, and as far as the Takins activity goes, they, when they locomote or when they walk, they have their head down low and they kind of sway side to side and they look tough. Like they look like bad tough, yeah. leap, like awesome. You know, they look like right, cool, right, cool right, dudes yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and gals. They move yeah. slow and deliberately, and, but they're also very nimble, right? Like they can stand up on their hind feet and mm-hmm. which makes sense with their, uh, their habitat and where they live in, in the wild. But what's also endearing it's two things. Sometimes you'll catch them sitting down like a dog. And, and I have a picture <laughs> and, and I'll share it on our on our web notes. It's just super cute. And who doesn't love a cute animal in a cute position? But they also sleep totally different than cows or any other bovine that I've seen. They sleep with their front legs extended and then they rest their head on like one of their front legs, like on the the knee or the carpal joint of their front legs, right. like a dog right, would. Right, right, right. And Kubla always laid in this position, and it was just so endearing. And so I, I don't know that that's just how they ruminate or what, but there's nothing better than a baby talking at a zoo. And so check out your local credit zoo to see when that happens, because if there are any, you need to go watch them. Like I said, very busy. Our behavioral studies showed that they spend a lot of time playing and so being social affiliative behaviors, a lot of head butting, uh, and just frolicking, jumping, playing with enrichment, just like a, like a goat, as I had mentioned before. And so just, they're mm-hmm. always a house favorite. I know we just recently covered, uh, meerkats on one of our Patreon episodes. Also another heart, you know, zoo favorite, right? Uh, because of their their busybodiness, right. I would say uh, a younger talking is definitely definitely a zoo favorite because they're so active. And 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 of course, the adults will be active too if you give them the right enrichment that they can beat up. Oh man, they will throw throw a barrel around or a ball. And right. yeah, they like I said, they're not scared to use their horns. Uh, and as far as communication goes, uh, the males. Once again, they'll have kind of this posture when they walk towards a female, like they're Mr. Cool Pants, slow, steady, tough walk. And they hold their neck kind of rigid and their horn, they'll even lower their head a little bit, almost like they're showing off their horns. And they, uh, they may spar heads too sometimes, uh, but usually even if it's a male on male, that usually doesn't get too aggressive. One will back off pretty quick understanding mm-hmm. the, they're a hierarchical dominance type animal, right? So they, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the younger, weaker ones understand what that means for the most part, typically. And as far as vocalizations go, they don't have a typical goat or cow or sound or sheep sound or anything like that, but they will snort and they have like deep, almost like guttural vocalizations. Uh, mm-hmm, and some even mm-hmm. describe too, that they have like a whistle through the nose. I don't know if I ever heard that one. Uh, but they, and then yeah. when they're in danger, they have this like coughing, uh, deep sound too, that comes from their throat. Uh, hey, if we stand by I'll play one really quick.
Yeah, that was like, you know what I thought? I, th- I thought, of, I don't know why, but I thought of uh, bison or I thought of Cape Buffalo. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> when I heard that. Definitely. You know? and that's pretty deep. Not an yeah. animal you want to mess with. That, that's for sure. Um, and in regard to the reproduction, we also looked at some of their reproductive behavior in our study. And once again, for our animals, we didn't really find a lot of courtship behavior and we didn't find much breeding behavior. So we're not sure if we may have missed some things because we didn't take data on them uh, in the dark. Uh, So research, you always learn from it. Theoretically, it would have been great to, if we would have had more money to have some like night cameras on them to see what they're doing in the nighttime. Mm -hmm. But we, they did breed, uh, our female did get pregnant. And so, so I don't know if some of their courtship behaviors are maybe more cow like, so quick and just, easygoing. Um, yeah, we definitely need more research on that. And as far as their estrus cycle, Rachel was looking into that, measuring the hormones and trying to figure out a little bit about that. And then of course, measuring too how to tell if they're pregnant, because what people might not realize is in a lot of these bigger zoo animals or zoo animals in general, it's not mm-hmm. as obvious as in humans when a female is pregnant. And the other thing is, it may not even be obvious or when it's obvious, it's like, oh my goodness, the baby's coming. So of course, zoos Mm -hmm. wanting the best health and care for the animals, we like to to prepare and know that an animal is pregnant and for how long they've been pregnant so that we can learn about their gestation period. And then of course we can prepare for when the offspring is going to come, whatever that means. Maybe we need to separate animals out. Maybe we need to prepare Mm -hmm. more bedding. Maybe we need, if it happens, if they're expected to give birth in the wintertime, maybe we need to keep them inside. So a lot of what Rachel's work is trying to figure out a lot about their pregnancy by measuring progesterone, right? The pregnancy hormone. And so we got, we got some really cool data about that. And I think uh, she was some, we were some of the, she was one of the first ones to report on that. And so now colleagues of of course across the country are utilizing that data, but we do know in the wild that males will gather with females during the rutting season, which is in late summer and Mm. around July, August, something like that. And the gestation period is about 220 days or seven to eight months. That's okay. mm-hmm. And our data from and our data from the zoo study did show that we think they are seasonal breeders. And we looked at all this data of births throughout North America. And it didn't follow a super obvious pattern, but there are definitely a couple of months that Takins were never born. And if it was completely random, such as a cow, right, that can breed any time of year, mm-hmm. uh, then it wouldn't be that then we wouldn't have had this this isolation. And so we, we do think they're seasonal breeders, which helps us in North yeah. in North America understand some of that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, say the sheep are seasonal, right. right? So we know sheep, yeah. So we know sheep breed in the winter months, so they have a shorter gestation, so babies are born in the spring. So it makes sense, especially something that lives in the Alpine you know, elevations that they would want to have babies when there was a lot of grass. So yeah, I guarantee you, well, I wouldn't give it, I would bet mm-hmm. <laughs> heavily if you were a man. that there's some seasonal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but it was yeah, really yeah, cool when stuff. we had the numbers yeah. from all the right. births in North America since like the 1990s, which really weren't, it wasn't mm. a ton, but it, it, it was enough to be Still stati- enough. Yeah. statistically significant, which is important right. in science. And so, yeah, right. it was, you know, things like that, that are really important. Um, but usually it's just like cows. It's uh, they give birth to one calf 
Uh, baby Tacken weighs about five to seven kilograms or 11 to 15 pounds. Stay tuned for the cutest picture ever of me. That is tiny. And Maylee. That's tiny. Uh, That's tiny. It is. Like I, yeah. like I said, stay tuned for the photo. Uh, I, I, It's not the cutest of me, but the Tacken is all you'll be looking at. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like all greasy and zookeeper-y, which is... Like I said, my favorite, the favorite part of my life, right? It was awesome. Um, but yeah, and, they're, and uh, you'll have to check out some of our pictures of talking calves. They're gorgeous. They, uh, they don't really have any horns when they're born, and their horns go slowly, both in males mm. and females. They come out with their hair darker than the moms at birth. At least this is all in the Sichuan talk, mm. and I guess I should have probably pre- prefaced mm. that ahead of time. But anyways, uh, and yeah. they also have a, a beautiful dorsal stripe running down their spine, and they're just wild and fun and full of personality and just, yeah, they're just awesome. And so they're in the wild. They're typically weaned around two months or so, uh, but they'll stay by their mom for a lot longer, even until maybe the next breeding season when uh, the next calf is born. Right, and it right. is important to note, too, which is a little bit different than other goat or cow species is that they don't become sexually mature until they're four and a half if they're female or five and a half if they're male and maybe even longer if they're a male to be tough enough to pass on their genetics, right? So when we look at life cycle, that's really important to think is that it's going to take these guys a while to rebound their numbers Mm -hmm. if they're not reaching their sexual maturity until they're four and a half or five or so. It's long. Yeah, it's a long time. And in that spirit, you know, these are vulnerable. They're classified as vulnerable. Their populations are decreasing. They're under a lot of pressure. You know, just to give some numbers from IUCN, Golden Talkin, uh, 5,500 latest estimates. The Mishmi Talkin at 3,500. The Sichuan Talkin, no hard numbers, but they estimate a few thousand. Uh. And this one, the Bhutan Talkin five to 700 left, you know? So overall max 12,000 again, small sports arena for an entire species of four subspecies. And correct me if I'm wrong. That's data from 2008 with IUCN. It's old. It is old. Yeah. It's old data. You know, that's another thing. That's another thing with IUCN. They're just, you know, the scientists in that organization doesn't have the money to update some of this stuff. You know, they're doing what they can and they're getting the data from various organizations around the world. But you and I know anybody that does science in exotic wildlife or endangered species, there's no money. Sure. You know, there's such tiny amounts of funding out there. You know, it just reminds me of the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians that we had on and talking about them and, and the little bit of money they can give, you know, four or five studies. And there's they're desperate. Sure. Everybody's desperate for money to help these animals. So anyways, get off my soapbox. But yeah, it's it's not great. They're not they're not heading they're heading towards extinction, obviously, sure. population decreasing. Mm-hmm. But I think China's taking notice and they're they're trying to protect the theirs and then you know, you were talking about something yeah. that where you might disappear. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I when you look for a talking conservation group there is not one. So hint, hint, John. That's one of my... <laughs> that, the, that the hippos. I know, right? So hippos and talkins, like his number one love, right. my tied for number one love. Uh, I mean, yeah. But yeah, so 
there's not an individual per se group that I could find. Now there's now there's a fair amount of researchers, especially in Asia, working with these guys and trying to understand more about their biology. And of course, several zoos. Uh, I know, I think it was um, the Bronx Zoo and I think the National Zoo and maybe the Wild out of Ohio had been overseas mm-hmm. to do some collaring, uh, radio collaring and working with um, working with some some wild tokens trying to figure out more about their numbers and their habitat Mm -hmm. so there are people that care about them it's just uh where where should you give your money i don't know (laughs) i guess uh go to your local credit zoo learn more about tokens share this information but i also want to give a big shout out to the country bhutan Mm -hmm. who as chris mentioned is starting to really pay attention to just conservation in general, and especially with the Takan. The Bhutan Takan is their national symbol or their national animal mm-hmm. symbol, and they do amazing work as far as being carbon neutral. There's actually a TED Talk I need to send you, or maybe we can put on our show notes, about what they're doing in their little country, because this is a small country, uh, not right. that many people, I think maybe 700,000 or something, that are doing some incredible work and I would say are, in my opinion, leaders in how to be environmentalists and how to be conservationists. Uh, So definitely a huge shout out to, I've never really given a shout out to a country before. Lord knows I have. (laughs) Lord knows I have not given a shout out to the United States of America as of recently. (laughs) Not Uh, lately, no, no, not lately. No, um, but definitely like, a huge shout out to Bhutan. So they're doing a lot there uh, to not only benefit the Takan, but of course, any any species from plants to soil to mm-hmm. animals and habitat their their land. And so I'm just really, really impressed. And a lot of it actually, Chris, has to do with what is called the four pillars of Bhutan's gross national happiness philosophy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is, but I want to be part of it. And so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can find me. <laughs> you can find me at one of the places I might be. It's called Motahang Takin Preserve, located in the Motahang. I think I'm saying that right. It's M O T I T H A N G district mm-hmm. of Bhutan. It's a wildlife reserve for Takin. And it originally was a mini zoo, but then, of course, they converted in this huge preserve and mm-hmm. are working on saving the endangered or threatened, I think it's probably endangered at this point, Bhutan yeah, Takin, yeah. which I've never right. seen in person. So I'll put, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and of course they don't Six have, months yeah, of course they don't have like a Facebook page or a website. Uh, they do no. have, they do have a Wikipedia page and they do okay. help house tourists and do some of that kind of those touristy type mm-hmm. activities. Um, and, but yeah, it's, that's another secret. So six months of the year, you're going to be in Africa at the Rhino Orphanage. And then six months out of the year, you're going to be in Bhutan at the Takin Refuge. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. For 12 months out of the year, when I run away, I'm going to be in Kenya at the Elephant Sanctuary. Oh, that's a great Bottle feeding too. baby elephants. That's where I will be. So I will, I I will fly know, down Chris. to South Africa You'll to see ha- you. I'll send you, the, I'll send you the link for the show notes. And you might change your app. Okay. It's beautiful. All right, it's beautiful all right. in Bhutan. So I know. I know, I know, I know. All right. Well, conservation tips this week, Angie. Trying to, I mean, we're not running out of stuff to say, but 
I like to you know, reinforce some of the other stuff we've mentioned in the past in case people didn't hear it at another podcast. And that's one of the things that, that I really, for me personally, need to pay attention more to. And that is shop smart. You know, we've say vote with our dollar. I'm trying to think of talking and, and there is some climate change stuff out there that's affecting them. You know, specifically the, the Mishmi talking, they, they actually, the Eastern Himalayas are very vulnerable to climate change. So you're seeing melting glaciers, less snowfall. The grasses are not doing as well. The, 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 you know, the flora is suffering mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. affecting Mishmi directly. So we all need to act. We all need to be conservation heroes. So this week, you know, shop smart. Some of the things that you need to look for, we've talked about in the past, certified sustainable palm oil that affects tiger, orangutan, all of those species in Indonesia. So you want to look for RSPO. Okay. That's certified palm oil. Something else you want to look for, Forest Stewardship Council, FSC, on wood and paper products. Angie and I talked about this in a past podcast talking about, you know, sustainable wood, sustainable forestry. So FSC products uh, are sustainable. And I'm going to put this on the show notes. I actually have the graphic. I'm going to put it on the show notes so you can look at these Mm -hmm. labels. Yeah. The other ones are the Marine Stewardship Council. So you want to look for that in your seafood. And then food and beverages with the Rainforce Alliance certified seal. So these are things that we all can do every single day when we go shopping or you know, whenever we do shop. Look for these products because we need to vote with our dollar. We absolutely need to tell these companies we want sustainable food products, period, end of story. Or not just food products, but everyday products in use general. products. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, we'll yeah. talk more about it in our next uh, in, our, in our next conservation news. But there are companies that are starting to listen. Some really big companies. Oh, yeah. And it's yes, because yes. they're feeling the heat, man. So let's yeah. let's keep it up. Keep it up. Let's keep it up. For the talking. All right. So yes, for the talking. Now for you know my favorite Greek. You know, this is for her, Julie. And, you know, Mike, another one of my favorite, favorite uh Greeks that I could probably pick their brains a little bit about the Jason and the Golden Fleece myth mm-hmm. because they're very fluent in Greek culture. But basically what I read up on is this was a myth born from ancient Greece and it's talking about Jason and the Argonauts. And Jason was tasked with to go find this mythical golden fleece. And he was trying to win his throne in in ancient Greece. And they thought it was from a golden coated ram. Okay. So they sent him, the the myth goes, to the the land of the Colchis, which is modern day Georgia country, Mm -hmm. not the state in the United States, country by the Black Sea in Asia. Okay. So Greece, that's pretty far, you know, going pretty far back then uh, out into Asia. Now, there is no evidence, obviously, to say the Tolkien had a direct effect on this myth, but they believe that a, the golden fleece or a fleece from a golden token would have been worth phenomenal amounts of goods and Trade. notoriety mm-hmm. back in the day. So they, they think because the token was so elusive and mythical that a golden coated token somehow made it that far west in Asia mm-hmm. and that there actually might be some truth to this myth that there was this golden fleece that Jason needed to go and get 
Well, so the talking, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I, in so, yeah. <laughs> truth be told, whenever I gave tours uh, behind the scenes about the talking, I would always just mention, mm-hmm. oh, and this is where the myth of the Golden Fleece came from. Yeah. But I never yeah. did the research. And I never knew the background. I just used it as yeah, a talking yeah. point. Uh, but I, once again, not being really into myths or whatnot. Uh, that's what mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. you for. Uh, cool. Oh, now, yeah. uh, now, if I gave a talk and tour, I could actually sound even more educated. Say, <laughs> yeah. And I think you know, I think a lot of our myths are based in fact. Sure. You know, especially in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, some of the stuff that they they based it on was based on facts that maybe passed down through generations, but that golden fleece was probably, they think, from a golden talking. Very so, cool. There you go. Oh, well, there you, you go, sure. Angie. So that. And thank you everybody for listening <laughs> and sticking with us and letting me talk about talking for an hour or so. I appreciate your interest. Check these guys out at your local accredited uh, zoo and and you'll thank me if you haven't already spent some time in front of their exhibit. And if you're awesome, you can travel mm-hmm. to Bhutan and see them in the wild. Send me pictures. <laughs> I'll be super jealous. And just thanks to everybody, especially Peppermint Narwhal, for uh, collaborating with us on this species. Check them out at peppermintnarwhal.com or also on Facebook. And once again, a huge shout out to Kubla, Chabi, Jensi, Maylee, and Bozo, <laughs> and all my keeper friends that I got to work with and training the talking and helping me fall passionately in love with this species. And I just feel blessed to have those critters in my life. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, stay tuned. We have some special episodes coming up and we'll be back soon with another species. We've got a full plate. I mean, a full plate. Angie and I have some big things working, cooking. It's getting good. It's It's getting good. It's getting good. We're getting better, better by the day. Yeah. yeah. So take care and we'll see you next week. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.